Um, so reading from Exodus chapter 32, verses 1 through 14. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives and your sons and your daughters and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stick, stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt? with great power and with a mighty hand. Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have promised, I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. The word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be, be to God. God. John, will you uh, read the gospel reading for us? I'd be glad to. <clears throat> from the 15th chapter of John, uh, verses 9 through 17. As the Lord has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, 
so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Together we say the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Amen. Friends, let's pray together. Father in heaven, as we come now uh, to consider your word, we ask for the power of your Holy Spirit. Uh, will you make your word clear to us? Will you apply it to our lives? And will you impart the faith, the repentance, uh, the obedience uh, that you want to see from us? So give us the power to do that and to respond to your word. So help us understand, help us to respond. Uh, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, friends, please uh, turn back to the Exodus reading. Um, and uh, we're going to be looking at that reading this morning. All right. One of the most uh, forceful objections to Christianity um, runs something like this. It, it, somebody might say, you know what? Listen, despite all the great things about Christianity, the fact of the matter is, I can imagine somebody saying, and I've heard people say, the fact of the matter is that Christians and the Christian church are often woefully corrupt. And in fact, sometimes Christians and Christian churches fall so short, fall so far short of their ideals that it ends up causing calling into question their entire message. Now you heard this objection, right? You can identify with it. Um, it it's probably it's gone through your mind almost certainly, right? In fact, if I'm talking to somebody who can't identify with that objection, that Christianity and churches are sometimes so corrupt that it calls into question the validity of their message in the first place. If you can't identify with that objection, then it seems to me that um, that person is either not paying attention or is not being very honest. It's a big objection. But let me point something interesting out. The very first person to ever raise that objection is God. Uh, God, as God presents himself in the Bible, God anticipates this objection before any secular humanist or any disillusioned Christian ever did. In fact, I would argue that this is one of the reasons to trust the Bible. Uh, the Bible <clears throat> doesn't airbrush religion. Did you know that? The Bible doesn't like mute all the bad stuff. The Bible rather spotlights religious corruption with a kind of unfiltered honesty. And today's reading is part of that story. So today's reading is the famous story of Israel and the golden calf. It's, it's famous or, or it's mildly famous. You've probably heard it, but it is crucially important. And it's crucially important because this story tells us how sin or corruption works within God's people, Israel and the 
in the Old Testament, the church in the New Testament. This story tells us how corruption and sin works within God's people, and it also tells us something about what God does about it. Or put differently, this reading teaches us how what the nature of sin is and how to resist it. And on the other hand, the nature of God's grace and why we should celebrate it. And as we look at this, Emmanuel, this is crucial for us in this moment that we're in right now. Um, we're in, I think everybody knows, a kind of delicate moment as a church. Um, the Lord has been completely faithful to us throughout this pandemic, and we need to not forget even an ounce of God's faithfulness to us over this last year. Um, and at the same time, as we head into the months uh, to come, we're, expect we're anticipating a kind of uncertain future in some sense. We get to relaunch and in some ways replant Emmanuel Church, which is exciting. And yet there's uncertainty. Um, right now, we don't even have a place where we can all together meet in one location. We're working on that and we're making steps. And the people at West 11th right now are uh, pushing that forward for us. But nevertheless, there's a fair amount of uncertainty in the months to come. Now, Emmanuel, the book of Exodus tells us that seasons of uncertainty are big with opportunity and seasons of uncertainty are also big with danger for God's people. Seasons of uncertainty are big with opportunity because God is so faithful and he's faithful even when you can't see it yet. And his faithfulness means that even in seasons of uncertainty, he will display his goodness and glory so that when you come through that season of uncertainty, you'll be able to look back and say, my ears heard of God's, uh, God's faithfulness in the past, but now my eyes have seen his faithfulness work out in my life and in the life of my community. So seasons of uncertainty are big with opportunity when you belong to a God like we do. On the other hand, seasons of uncertainty are big with danger for the people of God because our hearts tend to doubt that any of that is true. And that's why we need this reading. Because the golden calf story will reveal the subtle temptations that we're going to face in the midst of this uncertain time and all uncertain times. And so we need to look at this passage and watch how it is that sin works in Israel and we'll understand how sin works within our own hearts because God wants to guard us against corruption and sin and God wants to increase our confidence in his grace because that's where we'll be able to see his goodness and faithfulness and glory. So what I want to do is look at this passage and show you two things. I want to show you how sin works and I want to show you how grace works. First of all, how sin works. Pick up the story. When we pick up the story, Israel, Emmanuel, Israel is losing their minds. Okay, they are losing their minds uh, because of uncertainty and anxiety, and especially, especially impatience. Why? Well, do you remember the Ten Commandments? We talked about this two weeks ago. Um, uh, Israel and God. Do you remember this? They sort of got married. They didn't actually get married, but they entered into a covenant. And remember that a covenant is a committed relationship that's more binding than a friendship and more relational than a contract. And in this covenant that God and Israel entered into, God promised to bless Israel and Israel promised to obey the Lord. And the Ten Commandments were part of the terms. So Israel committed 
to the Ten Commandments, and God in and God uh, committed to them to treasure Israel and care for Israel and bless them forever. That happened, and then Moses goes up on the mountain of Sinai, and he goes up there to talk with God and get a bunch of instructions. Now, that was forty days ago, and since then it has been crickets. Isn't that awkward? Well, it was awkward for Israel because there's no word from Moses. Moses was talky-talky all the time and right in their face coming out of Egypt. And then he, all of a sudden he goes up on the mountain and we don't hear anything from him. And for Israel, that is desperately frightening because Israel is in the midst of a desert. They don't know really where they are. They know that they can't take care of themselves. So perhaps they start to think something like this. Where in the world has Moses gone? And what if the food runs out? And what if the water runs out? What if Moses died? I bet you Moses died. I bet you he fell off that cliff. Where is he? He's gone. It, and then and Israel looks around and goes, you know, we can't just sit around. We can't sit on our hands. We need to take some action. We need to look after ourselves. We need a God who doesn't take 40-day sabbaticals. Verse 1. When the people saw that Moses delayed from coming down the mountain, dot, 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 they concluded that Moses was out of the picture. Now, let me point something out that might not be obvious. Moses was not just a regular leader in Israel. He was a prophet. And more specifically, he was God's messenger, which is to say Moses' job was to communicate God's word and his message and his commandments and his promises in fact, during these 40 days up on the mountain, um, Moses was pretty busy because God was giving Moses the earliest version of our Bible. And so when Israel gets impatient, because they haven't heard any word, and when Israel begins to lose confidence in Moses, they're also losing confidence in God's messenger. And that means that they're losing confidence in God's message and his promises and his commandments. And which is to say they're losing confidence in God's word. And that, Emmanuel, is where sin always starts. The seed of sin is distrust of God's word. And it begins with thinking that might be like this. It's often not explicit or, or, or it's often unspoken thinking. It goes like this. You know what? God's word is great, man. It clearly works for others, but it doesn't work for me. Or it doesn't seem to be working for me. Or God's word is great, but my situation, my situation is different. Or God's word probably, maybe it doesn't mean what everybody has always said that it means. Or the world has changed and the Bible's from a different time. It was great then. The situation is different now. So we've got to make adjustments. Or for Israel in this moment, 40 days ago, we could trust Moses and God and his word. But now we've had crickets and therefore things are different and we need to take matters into our own hands. Now, when I say we need to take matters into our own hands, that in this case was literal because they actually tell Aaron, who Aaron was like the number two, they tell Aaron, Aaron, make us some gods. And like a coward, Aaron obeys them and not God. Verse two, 
So Aaron said to them, well, take off your rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives and your sons and your daughters and bring them to me. Now, that gold, their gold earrings and stuff, that gold was a gift from God originally. So God, when, uh, when God uh, liberated Israel from Egypt, God had moved the Egyptians to give Israel gold when they were liberated from slavery so that as Israel uh, exits slavery, they go, uh, they're not destitute. They've, they've got some wealth and there's a bit of compensation and so forth. So, so now Aaron says, take those gifts from God and uh, take those gifts that God has given you and manufactures, he manufactures them into a new God, a golden calf. And that golden calf was probably modeled on the Egyptian god Apis. But what matters is this. They've displaced the real god with a false god of their own making. And that's the second step in the sin process. Sin begins by distrusting God and his word. Sin matures by replacing God or displacing God and replacing God with ourselves or a gift of God and very often displacing God and prioritizing our strongest desires. Just consider this. It, in the Bible, the very beginning, God creates and we are created. And more specifically, at the beginning of the Bible, God creates us in his image. Now, sin and idolatry always take that and reverse it. So Israel here decides that they're going to take God's place. And instead of being made by God and living as God's image, they take the place of the creator and they make their own gods. And whenever we make a God, we make a God in our own image. What do I mean by that? Here's what I mean. Whenever we manufacture a new God, whenever we reject the true God and we replace him with something else, we always want a God who will align with our strongest desires. We all want an imaginary God that's kind of like us, a God in our own image. And part of the reason we want that is that we want a God whom we can control. We want a God who will do what it is that we want to do and will be able to say, yes, you go and you do that. And so what we do is we often take a gift from God, you know, and you know the usual suspects, uh, money and power and comfort and wealth and, and, and sexuality and relationships and sometimes children or spouses. We take these good gifts of God. We place them at the center of our lives. We make them uh, the foundation of our strongest trust. But very often as we're doing that, the reason we choose these things is because somehow we hope that these things are going to allow us to pursue our strongest level of desire. Now, go back to uh, Israel and watch how they worship their shiny, new-fashioned God. Verse 6. And Israel rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink, and they rose up to play. Now. See that word play? They weren't playing football. That was a euphemism. Not going to go into too much detail. But there was something like an orgy going on. And the reason that it's important for us to know that is that they had manufactured a God who was okay with a little sexual exploitation. They had manufactured a wicked little God 
who would say yes to their strongest desires. And that's how sin works. It starts with distrusting God and his word. It matures by displacing God with ourselves. And once that happens, we will cross any line that we find inconvenient. And guess what? We will justify ourselves the whole way down. Look at verse five. So Aaron sculpts this golden calf. And he sees that it's a big hit. And then what he says is he says, tomorrow we're going to feast to whom? To the Lord. Now you see the word Lord in all capital letters? That is the, that is the God of Israel's unique name. And so what Aaron is claiming here is he's claiming this golden calf I just made is actually the real God who saved Israel from Egypt. Because nobody could deny that Israel really had been saved from Egypt. And, and Israel agrees. Verse 4, they say, this is the calf. This calf is the God who brought us out of the land of slavery and out of Egypt. Now, do you see what they've done? Do you see how clever they are? They're saying something like this. They're saying, hey, listen, this is not idolatry. We're not cheating on God. Yeah, we sort of got married to God. We entered into a covenant with God, but this isn't, we're not committing, so to speak, spiritual adultery now. No, that's not what this is. This is not uh, idolatry. We're not cheating on God. We are worshiping the same God, but we're just doing it in a new way. The times have changed. The situation's different. We're adapting. Don't you dare say that I am disloyal to the God who's liberated us from Egypt. And we're not, they would say. But that's how, how sin always sounds. Sin begins by distrusting God and his word. Sin matures by displacing God with self. And then sin secures itself by justifying the whole thing in some really clever ways. But here's the tough thing. We're so good at justifying ourselves that we often believe we are not sinning right in the moment when we are entering into corrupt religion, right at the moment when we are trading in God for something that is shiny and cheap and dangerous. And Emmanuel, we all of us love to believe our own marketing. And that's why we need stories like this. Let me ask this. Emmanuel, can you see our, can, can you see us in Israel? Can you see you? Can I see me in Israel? Because it's easy to write Israel off, right? Because I don't think any of us are particularly tempted to sculpt a cow and then worship it. I, I know I do not have the capacity. I've tried to sculpt things. They never look like the thing I tried to make, right? So I'm not going to make a cow anytime soon. However, don't write it off too quickly. Because we are all of us tempted to distrust God's word. And we are all of us tempted to displace God with ourselves or with something he's made. I have very often a really good gift in our lives. We want to make the center of our lives and it displaces God there. And then we end up indulging our strongest desires. And all of us are super skilled at justifying all of it and telling ourselves and everybody else that we are fine and there's nothing to see here. Can you recognize yourself at all in any of this? Because if you can, that's a good sign. Those are going to be the areas of our temptation. And that's going to be the space where the spiritual battle rages. And we've got to know that that's there. And that's also where we need God's grace. So let's shift over and look at how God responds to sin here. Let's look at God's grace. Look back at the reading. And at first, it doesn't look like grace, does it? 
It looked like mean, angry God, right? And it is. So God speaks with Moses in verse seven and says, Moses, I want you to go back down the mountain. Those people of, no, yours, those people of yours, they've corrupted themselves. Your people, Moses, have corrupted themselves. They built a statue and now they're cheating on me with this statue and it's a capital offense and I'm gonna judge them. So remember uh, when they entered into the 10 commandments and the covenant with God, the terms were uh, Israel said, yes, we agree that if we uh, reject you, then um, we, it is, a capital offense. And so God's saying, hey, they're guilty. Now, does that sound harsh? It sounds scary to me. But let me ask you to consider this. Remember the objection I mentioned at the very beginning? That sometimes Christians are so corrupt that it calls into question their entire message, right? You can identify with that objection, can't you? And remember that I said the very first person to ever raise that objection is God himself. And this is one place where he does that. And this is one reason we can trust him. Think of it this way. Imagine that God is like super, super nice all the time, like Santa Claus in the sky. Okay, let's imagine that God sees our sin and he's like, oh, but I know you mean well. So he overlooks it because he's nice. And uh, listen, that's a God that you can never trust. Because a God who tolerates sin is a God who is complicit with every sort of religious evil imaginable and every other kind of evil imaginable. And a God like that is no God at all. That God is a demon. Or maybe better, that is a golden calf we've made in our own image and we use it to justify ourselves. And that's a God you must never trust. But the God of the Bible, Emmanuel, I want you to know that the God of, God of the Bible is not like that. The God of the Bible is no golden calf, and the God of the Bible is no demon. The God of the Bible is a God of justice, and that's why you can trust him, and it's also why he's scary. And Emmanuel, you and I will never really grasp God's grace and how he overcomes sin and evil in us and in others until we see the goodness of God's judgment against our sin. Can you see it? But now watch what Moses does. Because I said before that Moses is a messenger, but he's not only a messenger, he's also a mediator. And a mediator is somebody who stands between God's judgment and Israel's sin. Watch how he does it. Verse 11, watch how he prays. Moses prays three ways. He reminds God of God's saving action in the past. He reminds God of God's intention for the whole world. And he reminds God about God's promise long ago. First, Moses reminds God of God's saving action in the past. Verse 11, Moses says, God, wait a second. These are my people. These are your people. You chose them. And God, don't destroy Israel because they, you just saved them from Egypt. Pause. Moses knew that God is a God who loves to rescue. And he had rescued Israel from slavery, literal slavery. But now Moses is asking God to save Israel from spiritual slavery, not because they deserve it, but because God's love is bigger than Israel's sin. And Moses knows that God's past deeds have already proven that that's who God really is. And therefore, God appeals to God's saving action in the past. But then secondly, Moses appeals to God's intention for the whole world. 
I've said before that God rescuing Israel out of Egypt is how God introduced himself to Israel, but it is also how God introduced himself to the whole world. And therefore Moses says, God, you are introducing yourself not only to Israel, but to Egypt and to all other nations. So if you destroy Israel, then everyone will look at your destruction of Israel and conclude that you are cruel, but that's not accurate. Therefore God show the whole world who you really are. And the best way you can do that is by showing mercy that is beyond our imagining, have mercy upon Israel. And then finally, Moses' clincher and closer is verse 13. He says, God, remember your promises. Remember your promises to Abraham. In other words, God, remember your word. You always keep your word. Moses says, remember that you promised Abraham that you would save his children forever. And Moses says, you are always faithful to your promise and you are faithful to your word. Therefore, show mercy, says Moses. Show grace to Israel, again, not because they deserve it, but because it will display your glory and your power and your grace and your character with unprecedented beauty. And that's a prayer and an argument that the Lord just won't say no to because it's an appeal to who God is. Do you remember how sin distrusts God and displaces God with self and justifies it all? I want you to see that grace reverses all of that. Grace says, sin, it's not justifiable, it deserves judgment. And then grace decenters us and our desires and our sin and recenters God and his justice and his mercy and his glory. And then finally, grace bases all of it on the firm foundation of the trustworthiness of God's word. Well, let me say it differently. Emmanuel, grace, when it's working in your life, will first come to us and convict us of our sin until we're humbled to the core. But then grace will turn our eyes from ourselves and our desires and our sin and turn our eyes to God until we see God's glory and justice and mercy all together in one beautiful harmony. And then finally, as we become more captivated with God, more captivated with God than we are with ourselves, then grace will build within us a trust in God's word and promise and gospel. Emmanuel, that's what God wants to do in you and in me and in all of us in the midst of this uncertain time. Get ready for God to do that. He's calling you to it. And he's calling you to that right in the middle of your temptation and mine. Watch for it and seek it intentionally. And the way you seek it is by looking at the beauty of Jesus Christ. What? Why did I say that? Well, because Moses was one of the first mediators of grace, but Jesus is the last and the greatest. Because when Jesus died upon the cross, God's judgment against Israel's sin and my sin and your sin all was coming down on Jesus. He willingly suffered the capital punishment for our capital sins. He suffered for our sin, though he did not commit any of it, but he willingly took our place. And as he died on the cross for our sin, the full beauty of God's promise and glory and grace was set on display in him so that when you look at Jesus Christ, you will find a God that is so much better than any stupid golden calf. And the more you're captivated by him, the less you will be tempted by your sin. And then finally, on the cross, all of God's promises were fulfilled, which means the more you look at Jesus, the more you will find the final proof that God's word can be trusted and that God is faithful, even when you can't see it yet. So Emmanuel, in this uncertain time, be on guard against temptation and sin and actively seek the Lord to give us a new depth 
of turning away from our sin and to him. And then keep your eyes fixed on Jesus because he will show us his beauty and his beauty will allure you to a deeper trust and he will guide us through this time and we will never get tired of praising him for the faithfulness he shows us now and in the years to come and throughout all eternity. So turn your eyes from the golden calf and look at Christ upon the cross. Amen. Hello, everyone. My name is Jim Saladin. I'm the rector here at Emmanuel Anglican Church. Uh, our church exists to see and describe and reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ for the flourishing of our city. And I hope this podcast encouraged you in that way towards Christ. If you're here in New York City, we'd love to see you. Please join us on Sundays at 11 a.m. Generosity drives everything we do at Emmanuel. And if you'd like to contribute, please visit www.emmanuelanglicannyc.com slash give.